Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly comic book podcast. This is Kate Fitzsimmons, and I am currently interviewing the famous J. Michael Straczynski. So uh, this is in, I suppose, in reference to his new autobiography, uh, Becoming Superman. Um, is there anything you want to tell our listeners about this book? Well, I wanted to write a book that, in a way, on the one hand, encapsulates the process by which a person becomes a writer, but also to show that, in my case, having come from rather horrific circumstances and uh, very poor circumstances, that it doesn't matter in, in many ways where you come from or what liabilities you have or what schools you went to, that if your dreams are at the level you require and your passion is there, you can become almost anything. I mean, if I can succeed as a writer, anybody can do it. So, I mean, you are known for uh, your work on <clears throat> Babylon 5, for Changeling, the movie Changeling, for obviously many comic books. Um Reading the book, I was, unsurprisingly given the title, struck by the impact that comics had on you as a small child. How do you think those childhood experiences with comics informed the comics you eventually wrote? For me, growing up on comics, and particularly on Superman, uh, was a life-changing and life-affirming experience. Uh, I come from a family where there was no moral compass whatsoever, and Superman, for me, represented a person with ethics, with a certain element of compassion. Uh, he never lied. He never hit anybody who didn't hit him first. And for me, that became a, a, a lifeboat into which I could put my own dreams and ambitions and all the things that I lacked in my life. So as I went forward and eventually became a writer for comics as well, I wanted to do stories that weren't just about blowing stuff up and who was fighting who, uh, but rather you know, stories that dealt with character and emotion and offered a certain degree of hope, the kind of hope that I got from Superman and from comic books. Uh, it is a, a genre that I think speaks profoundly at every level, whether you're a kid or an adult, to say that you can be more than you think you can and that the requirements of life are that sometimes you must put yourself on the line to help somebody else out. It may not end well for you, but you have to do it. So for me, that was at the core of it, trying to bring that moral and ethical point of view forward into my own work. So obviously as someone who loved comics and then came into writing comics, um, especially given the, the long history and many bits of comics. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's a cat in the background here. One moment. Sorry, I'm, I'm recording from a, a city apartment. Okay, let's, let's see. Um, given your long history in comics, as someone who started as a fan and ended up a comics writer, were there things that you were really excited to to work with, to play with, uh, with the sort of comics toolbox? Oh, absolutely. And that's been really the great <clears throat> joy of my life in terms of working in the comics forum is that you know, I, having come from not much of a background, I was able to start in the comics area with my own books, Rising Stars, The Midnight Nation, 
and then they began handing me the, the big toys. The big, you know, uh, right off the bat, they gave me Spider-Man at a time when Marvel was um, coming out of a near bankruptcy. Mm. And it's just something to reignite their titles and, and to re- reinvigorate the company. They said, take Amazing Spider-Man and run with it. And I did that book for six years and had an absolute blast doing it, knowing that I was writing a character who was uh, uh, an archetype, who was central to, to, to so much of fandom over the years, including my own. And then later on down the road, to be given the chance to reinvent Superman for a modern audience in the uh, Earth-1 hardcover series. Uh, and for, for a kid who modeled his own personality and sense of ethics on Superman and kind of created myself in his image, if you will, to be able to have the opportunity to have Dan DiDio say, we want you to recreate this character in a way kind of based on, on you was a nice bit of symmetry. Um, and that book, of course, ended up on the New York Times bestseller list and did very, very well for, for, for DC. So uh, the, the opportunity to work for both Marvel and DC on iconic characters and also work on the Thor movie was just, you know, doesn't get much better than that. You famously wrote Babylon 5, a five-season space epic, almost single-handedly. How is that, how did that compare and contrast with, like, writing monthly comics? Uh, in general, Babylon 5 was much, was much more difficult because whenever you're writing a show, whether it's Babylon 5 or more recently Sensate for Netflix, um, it's not just a matter of writing scripts. Mm. You are running the entire show. The showrunner... You hire the staff, you write the scripts, you do the final cuts of all the uh, the edits. You work with wardrobe and prosthetics and, and, and makeup and hair to determine every single look down to the color of the paint on the walls. So it's ridiculously intense. It also means dealing with actual other carbon-based life forms slash human beings, which is not always my strong suit. Uh, I'm much better suited to staying at home and, and just writing so say the restraining order, certainly. Uh, so <laughs> for me, that's, that's a lot more fun. So you're a writer on Real Ghostbusters and a whole bunch of other animation. Um, in both cases, you are not writing for real living human beings. You're you're writing sort of in, in the world of drawn media, as it were, where anything is possible. Uh, what's similar and different about writing for animation and for comics for you? The similarities are that you really have to start with character for me. Um, there was a, um, a German philosopher who made the somewhat fallible but nonetheless poignant uh, point that uh, he said Americans build their personalities from the outside in, <clears throat> and Germans build their personalities from the inside out. Of course, that favored his <laughs> his country. Of course. Uh, there are a lot of you know writers who start from the outside in. They start uh, from plot, and then they back their way into character. And I go the other way around. I, I start with character because once you determine um, you know who the character is, what they want, how far they're willing to go and how far someone else will go to stop them, that gives you your story. So I tend to go always to the character first. They don't care about the characters. Nothing else matters. Uh, where they diverge <clears throat> is that 
in uh, a comic, the pictures don't move. Mm. That's probably the hardest part for me to to wrap my brains around in making that transition, because you can write <clears throat> in a script, um, TV script or, or even animation script, he runs down the hall, kicks in the door, and runs inside. You can't do that in the comic script. You have to have him either running down the hall or kicking in the door or running inside, unless you're the Flash and you put a blur effect behind it. Uh, so I had to think in terms of storyboards rather than fluid motion. That took me the longest while to get behind that. So there's a recurring theme in your book of editorial interference, particularly from people who don't write. Um, the consultant debacle that led to Slimer and the real Ghostbusters cartoon was particularly striking. Uh, has it gotten any better over the years for you or in general? Uh, do you think some industries are, are worse about this than others? I think it's gotten to be less provincial. Uh, certainly the success of more adult-oriented animation like Simpsons and South Park has had a significant effect in loosening up the handcuffs a little bit. Um, back then also you had uh, the whole satanic panic thing going on where the mm -hmm. consultants were sure that you were slipping in references to Satan, uh, which of course I was out of the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> also when you had toy companies involved, as in He-Man or Shira, to sort of want to keep the storytelling very soft because they didn't want to lose any market share, they would lean on you more. Uh, I have not been directly involved in animation since I blew up my career uh, deliberately and, and, and left animation a number of years ago. But my perception of it, and to those who I've spoken to about it, is that there is now a lot more latitude, a lot more freedom, uh, as it should be. I think that's, that's a terrific move forward. Right. But um, I know you encountered, I mean, that was particularly striking, but you, you encountered that kind of interference in the book. Uh, in a lot of different industries, albeit not on that scale or in that particular way. Um, given that you've written for so many different media, so many different industries, uh, movies, television, comics, animation, um, are there any fields where you think it's better or worse? Like, how, how does it differ? In terms of creative freedom, it, it's kind of it's all over the map. It depends on who you're working with. Um, for me, you know, the, the way the comics have the most creative freedom for me at the moment, <clears throat> because the editors who work with me know I have a very simple rule: don't change my stuff. You change my stuff, I walk away. And if you want that, you hire me. If you don't, you don't. So through all the six years I worked with Marvel, they never changed a word of my scripts until the very end on One More Day. DC, same thing. What I wrote, they printed. Um, movies are a little more problematic because the process is more designed to knock the corners off the story and make it more generic. Uh, I was talking to an executive at one particular studio who said that we want our story to be simple enough to be put on the, on the side of a lunchbox and get it. And that's, you know, a hard target to hit. Yeah. Uh, television right now has gotten much more uh, embracing of great and different diverse uh, points of view because a lot of folks who fled movies are now coming to television. 
uh, and, and comics, of course, remain a, a fun form to get into. For me, no one cares 30 years down the road if you put out a piece of work that is <clears throat> less than stellar, if you say, well, yeah, it was better than that originally, but the studio changed it. Uh, all they know or care about is the final product. It's like when you're in theater, you're an actor and you show up for the performance, no one in the audience cares that you had a crappy day. They're just going to look at your work and evaluate it for what it is. And I, I cannot, as grandiose as this may sound, and I recognize that, uh, if, if a script has my name on it or a book has my name on it or an episode has my name on it, to me it has to represent what I actually wrote. And because that's all that survives me. I don't believe in an afterlife I think all that will survive me is the work. So I have a moral and ethical responsibility to protect the work. And that means getting into a scrap with producers or publishers or whomever, then that's all I have to do. And if I, if I can't win, if they're going to make it dumb, as they did with the, the remake on, on Ghostbusters, then I have to just walk away. It, it's, it's no fun. I'd rather not have to do it. But I think that you have to draw a line in the sand at your own personal I, I guess integrity is, is the right word, even though, again, that sounds self-indulgent, but I get the vision that you bring to the work. If you're hiring me, you're hiring my point of view. And I think every writer, every artist, really, has a, a, a lens in the center of their forehead that is built and created through everything that they've ever seen and done and experienced that gives them a perspective no one else has. Whenever I hire a writer, I hire Neil Gaiman to work on Babylon 5 in our fifth year, I know that Neil Gaiman <clears throat> could do the best Neil Gaiman script of anybody out there, because no one else has his lens. And so when I hire someone, I respect that point of view, and I let their work, work go through. When you hire me, you are hiring the lens in, my, in the middle of my head, and that lens can't do what it needs to do, that I need to walk away. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think it sounds self-indulgent um, or unreasonable, um, because even leaving the afterlife out of it, you know, your, your career will hurt if audiences think you're a bad writer. Yeah, no, no question. And plus I'm just generally cranky. Yeah, I like, I like to have my way as a, as a writer. Um, so to me, I've, I've, I've walked off a lot of shows, walked off a lot of projects, but the result is that what is out there with my name in it represents who I am as an artist or as a writer and as a person. And that's, that's to me, all that matters. Are there circumstances in which you enjoy collaboration? Oh, absolutely. I, I, if I can find somebody, and I do all the time, who is smarter than me and, 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 and more capable and I can learn from, I'll take that at any opportunity because <clears throat> I don't know all the answers. And every writer has their own set of unique tools and sometimes you meet someone and you work with them on a project and you realize he has tools that you know you don't have. So the first thing you do is you steal them so you can have them in your toolbox. And I love the collaborative process when it's smart and I can learn something. Um, so, for instance, uh, a few years ago I worked with Jim Cameron on a project who has this amazing 12-story brain. I loved every time we had email exchange, I felt like, Someone was pouring hot lava into my head. Uh, I, I learned so much. And he said, one of the smartest things I'd ever heard about writing for science fiction or fantasy. 
He said, I used to think writing science fiction was about writing familiar characters in unfamiliar settings. It took me 10 years, he said, to realize I was wrong. That writing science fiction <clears throat> is about writing familiar relationships in unfamiliar settings. So aliens is a mother-daughter relationship, even though it's not. Terminator 2 is a father-son relationship, even though it's not. Because you can buy into that relationship, and once you take that as a gateway drug, you may not be able to normally buy into robots or space travel or what have you, but you buy into that relationship. But once your heart is there, you accept the rest. So those kinds of lessons are just phenomenal to learn. So I do enjoy the collaborative process when that can happen. So are there any favorite things that you've done in comics? I mean, of, of all the things you've written in comics or graphic novels, like personal favorites, not necessarily we've got the most acclaim, what's the best known, but things that just were really satisfying for you or you're very happy with what you got in the end. Probably the Mount Everest in terms of personal satisfaction would be Midnight Nation, the um, uh, series I did for uh, for Image and Top Cow. Um, I, when I was around college age, I got jumped by a street gang and almost beaten to death. Uh, and it made me question my own mortality and it hit me at a time when I was very much in flux about a lot of different things and I was... Um, trying to deal with all the emotion of that. And I was in, just going on these long walks in downtown San Diego and often ended up around dawn before I came back. And one dawn I was there and I saw the, the people of the night, uh, the, 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 the hookers, the pimps, the drug dealers, the homeless, the lost, the, the thrown away, the runaway retreat into the shadows as the daylight people came out, the, the, the bosses, the secretaries, the assistants, the, you know, the, the, the people who have day-to-day jobs. And at the same corner, the same intersection, while I was waiting for the bus, I was just struck by this notion that there were two San Diego's, two worlds side by side, occupying the same geography, but separated by light and shadow. And that led me to Midnight Nation, where I got to explore a lot of very personal themes and wrap a murder mystery inside of a love story, inside of an existential conversation about the meaning of life. So I think overall, of all the things that I've done, that's my, my, my strongest personal favorite thing that I've done. Is there anything in in comics um, that you would have done or written differently looking back? Yeah, there were a few things because... When I first came into the mainstream of the comics industry, I've been working a lot in television and had gotten a reputation, I know this will be astonishing to you, for being somewhat difficult. And so I thought, I'm going to walk into the comics business being open and being collaborative and not wanting my own way all the time in, in, in terms of dealing with the executives. So when I was at Marvel, uh, I was going to write uh, a story about how, you know, uh, Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy got them together and she had a kid that he never knew about. And when I submitted the outline to um, Marvel, they said, that would age Peter <clears throat> too much. Why don't you make it um, uh, Norman Osborn's kid instead? The fans will go crazy. <laughs> Is that really a, a good idea? No, no, trust us that this is going to be great. 
Well, sins past did not do as well as one would might, might have hoped for. Uh, the same thing also happened <clears throat> with one more day where when I came back to Marble, when I was at Marble and, I, and they brought me in, my main task was putting Peter and MJ back together again as a married couple. And I loved writing that relationship. I thought I loved everything about it. And they were such a cute couple. But Marvel's position at that time was that, again, it aged Peter and made him feel like an older character. And they wanted to undo the marriage by all means necessary. And I was not enchanted with the device that they use of having Mephisto make a deal with Peter. I just it just didn't resonate with me. And it opened up a lot of, a lot of logic holes. But I figured, okay, I'm going to just be a good soldier and follow through and do this. And uh, that did not necessarily go as well, again, as I might have hoped. The two cases where I sort of did not put the spurs on and, and, and walk in guns blazing kind of bit me in the butt. Um, so I learned the hard lesson about, you no know, keep keep doing what you're doing in the first place. There's a time and place to be a nice guy and a time and place not to be a nice guy. Are there any things that maybe weren't from the executives, but on your own that, you know, maybe because you were newer to comics in particular, or just because, you know, the way things played out that you thought, Hey, maybe I would have written that different or, Hey, maybe that other guy who was like, are you sure was right? Um, yeah, <clears throat> Again, but back at Marvel, I did um, Supreme Power, which I always conceived of <clears throat> as really a one-person story, that of Mark Bolton, um, uh, who really I wanted to build out that character as Hyperion. And the book did extremely well for Marvel. And the difficulty was it was an uh, adult-rated title, and they wanted to move it to a non-adult title, through and make it squadron supreme about the group, and I thought, great, I can do that. And unfortunately, this is my own failing. Um, I was really good at writing titles with like one or two main characters. I knew how to do that and how to balance that out. When it came time to do the book about ten or twelve different characters, I did the Robbie the Robot thing where my brain begins flashing and, and breaking down. And I I kept trying to make that book work. Marvel was very gracious. They were very accommodating, very supportive, but I just could not make it work. It sucked. And it got to the point where I finally I said to Marvel, look, I, you, you need to find another writer because I am just blowing it. Uh, and they said, no, 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 we support you. Please keep going. And I tried a little further and I finally had to just leave because I did not have the skill set. Now I do have a skill set to do a, a group book, but at that time, still being relatively new to comics and, and trying to balance out multiple characters and multiple narratives at the same time, I just, I stooged it. And there's there's no two ways about it. So there's something very comic booky, very almost super-powered, though not quite superhero, about Sensei, um, your most recent television series. I mean, television... Netflix, internet stream video thing, television series. Um, do, do you, were there any conscious comic book 
inspirations in that? Not really. We, Lana and I, um, really wanted to do a story that said we are better together than we are apart. Right now, as a country, uh, we are being fashionalized and marginalized and tribalized to within an inch of our lives. If the country were divided right now geographically, as it is politically, you'd be hearing gunfire in the distance. And we wanted to, to you know, say that you may think that this character in Mumbai or Korea or, or Nairobi is so different from you, but if you could see inside that person's head and walk around in their head for a while, you might discover that in point of fact, they're not so different after all. So that came out of, again, going back to the building it from the inside or from the outside in, going from the inside out of thinking of the importance of connectivity and wanting to build communities and to say something important about our, our need for company, for community, that what, what unites us as, as, as a human race is more powerful and stronger than whatever will be set to try and divide us. So there wasn't a, a comic book story inclination from that, but both Lana and I, you know, are fans of comic books and I wouldn't be surprised if in, in the presentation of some of that, that sensibility crept in unconsciously, but from a, a design point of view, that was not at the forefront of our heads. So with your book, which is coming out, um, you said right toward the end that you're sort of heading in the direction of, of books. Is there anything you can tell us about your plans in that direction? Well, it's actually been very funny because um, in terms of comics, about three years ago, I took a hiatus from writing comics because I felt I was getting facile, where I want to say it became easy because it's never easy, but I knew how to do it <clears throat> well enough that I began to think I need to do something I'm not comfortable with that I haven't been doing for a while and stretch myself. So I said, I'm taking an extended leave of absence. I may or may not come back, depending on the breaks. And in the interim, I'm going to work on novels and plays. And as it, as it happens, uh, my first novel, uh, mainstream novel, uh, goes out to market today. Uh, the agents love it, uh, and it's going out to market. And I'm crossing my fingers that it will find a happy home somewhere. Um, in terms of the comic world, however, uh, I may not know if you're aware of this or not, uh, but Bill Hamas and um, Axel Alonso, who created, well, Bill was the um, publisher for Marvel for many years, and um, Axel was the editor-in-chief of Marvel for many years, left <clears throat> a while back, and they recently formed a new comic book company, uh, Artists, Writers, and Artisans, AWA, and asked me to come on board as kind of the, what, what, what Axel's term for it was the, the lead Jedi on the committee, uh, to work with other writers and sort of help to shape and create the universe in which our story will be taking place. So um, that process has not begun. I've turned in four four scripts so far in the last month, and uh, that will launch the company in, in the fall. Uh, and the cool thing is, we're creating an entirely new universe. Uh, my my talk to Axel initially about how we were going to do this. I said, look, the, you know, the DC characters came out of the 
40s, early 50s, for the most part, when they really hit, as authority figures. I mean, Batman is a cop. Superman is, is technically a cop in many respects. He even has the authority to proceed on crimes anywhere on the world. Uh, Green Lantern, interstellar cop. Flash, cop scientist. Hawkman, <laughs> interstellar cop. They're authority figures. Marvel, in the 60s, when they became very popular, were about anti-authority figures. That was their paradigm. So you've got the Hulk, who was the figure of chaos. Thor, who answers to nobody. Spidey is just a kid. Uh, the X-Men are on the run from the government. And I said, we need to figure out what the paradigm is today. If, if we're going to look at creating comics in, in 2019 and 2020, we need to be really cognizant of the very different world that we are living in. And I proposed a, a structure to the universe to Axel, which he loved a great deal. So the first issue that will reveal that universe will be, will be mine. And the company is kind of putting a lot of trust that I know what I'm doing. I think that I do. In, in, a, in a, an approach to comic book storytelling that really has not ever been done before like this. So I'm, I'm very excited for the first time in three years, almost four years, to be back in the comics world again. And, and having the opportunity to work with Axel and Bill and the other writers to create our own brand new fresh comic book universe and characters who you really haven't seen before. So hold up, hold up. Don't bury the lead. Um, so we at Publishers Weekly have been following artists, artists, writers and artisans as ever since their first announcement. But I hadn't known that it would all be one shared universe. So all the books, all one shared universe. There's two layers. There's what they call league books and team books. The league books take place in one shared universe. So my job is, is in many ways to sort of create the roles of that universe, how the powers came into existence, who has them, why they have them, what they can do with them. Then the other writers fill in that universe with their own characters and they, they populate it. In addition to that, the people, the writers in the committee and others can create their own separate books and live in their own separate worlds. Those are called team books. Um, and those will be outside of the shared universe. But yeah, the whole idea for, for, for me and for Axel was to create a, a shared universe where we can do overlap where it's down to the smallest detail. One thing that I said to, to Axel we should do is come up with a, for instance, for a calendar for a year where we block out for a year Incidents that happen around the world. And the bad example being, and please don't think that this is literal, you know, a, a volcano here, the hospital burns down, there's a riot, the government is toppled, and we peg it to specific times of the year. And then that becomes a calendar that the artists and writers can use if they so choose during the course of that year, the one year of story time because one year of the calendar to have in their books if they so desire. So for instance, if I'm writing a book where there's my character's caught in the middle of a riot somewhere in Brazil and we're in the middle, in the middle of dealing with this, in another, character, another writer's book somewhere over there, um, that would be playing on the TV monitor in a restaurant somewhere. To give it a sense of continuity, a sense that this is one large shared breathing living universe, as well as all the characters having a certain commonality in how they got their powers. So it's really a textured approach to it that that really hasn't been attempted before at this level, and it's going to be I think, very exciting. Yeah, um, you were saying about your you know character first 
approach to writing. Um, this seems like it would be built for that for writers. And it's making me think about the fact that uh, comics in general are kind of character first. That, you know, if you come on a Batman book or you you come on a Spider-Man book, the character is already there. And then that is what you use to build with. Um, do you think that that approach in, in comics maybe help inform that approach in your writing? Or is it just sort of a, a happy synergy? The, the problem, and I, I ran into this and others encounter it all the time, mm-hmm. in dealing with <clears throat> established characters is that lint accretes on them over time. Silt accretes on them over time until all you can see anymore is the symbol on the chest. Yeah. And it becomes very hard for a lot of writers, you know, I, 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 I'm among them, to come up with new stories for those characters that have never been done before. And very often the plots tend to become more, you know, again, more plot or story oriented than character oriented. Uh, I was talking to uh, one editor who I will not name uh, over at DC who said, you know, he had a writer come in to pitch a story. And he said, it's, okay, it's Batgirl versus Supergirl. And, and the editor said, okay, why those two characters? And the, editor, the writer said, well, you've got, you know, the Batman symbol and the Supergirl symbol. And that those two always go together. So that's not what I, the question I answered is why those characters? And he came back to, well, it's the symbols. And yeah. He couldn't, he couldn't get past that point. And, after a while, the character's been around for 50 years. There are certain assumptions about who the character is or is not that can become like walls around the character to make it harder to do more intimate kinds of storytelling. Um, so for me, when I did you know, Superman Earth 1, it was really more about him trying to find an apartment in New York and having this girl down the hall who liked him, he liked her, and the dynamics of that, rather than, you know, fighting the bad guy, which came much, much later in the process. So what we're doing is we're looking at really digging deep into the characters who get the powers in the sense that my sense on fame and money is that they make you more of what you were in the first place. Mm. So if you were a nice guy before fame and money, you're a nicer guy after fame and money. If you were a jerk before fame and money, you're a bigger jerk afterward. Because it gives you permission to be your natural self. And for a lot of people who get these powers in our stories for the new company, they make them more of what they were in the first place. Uh, and But you have to know who that character was for that to work. So we're really taking a, a much, much stronger character-based position to it that, you know, also because they're brand new. So it's just easier to write character-based stories for brand new characters than it is for established characters, which is why very often when the writer comes on to a book, he will create all these new supporting characters because they're fresh. He likes to write that or she likes to write write that rather than trying to find a new way into a character that's been explored for 30, 40, 50 years. So what are some of the things you did to try to find a new way into characters that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years? Well, with Spidey, I really played into the aspect of him being a New Yorker and <clears throat> built 
the, the, the questions of how he operates and the relationship with MJ was a large part of it. Um, I wanted to, for instance, deal with the question of Aunt May not knowing he was Spider-Man. Uh, it, it's been a trope, again, one of those things where the silt accumulates, that if Aunt May ever found out who Spider-Man was, she would just fall over dead. And I never bought that sexist point of view for a second. This is a woman who, who saw her husband killed, you know, Peter's parents being murdered or disappearing, and then raised a, a, a young boy by herself. And that takes a spine of titanium. And so I said, screw all the stuff we think we know. I think that while Peter got his powers from the spider, he got his strength from Aunt May. And that gave me a different point of view, into not just his character, but her character as well. So when that conversation happened and she learned who he was, she didn't fall over dead. And they had a whole new layer to their relationship where she could discuss her own guilt over what happened to Uncle Ben. And those kind of things where you go really deep into the assumptions we think we have and say, well, from a character point of view, what if we turn it upside down and do this instead? Refreshes the entire character. Refreshed him, refreshed Aunt May, their relationship, plus MJ's relationship now is affected by this. You go deep inside and you come back out the other side again. So are there any approaches to trying to refresh a character or get into an older character that you personally think don't work or don't work as well? None that come to mind offhand. <laughs> okay. Sorry, that may not have been a particularly politic question. I retract it. Um, well, it's not politic, I just come to get good examples. Okay. Um so what are you looking forward to at this particular stage in your career? Because, I mean, you, you have so many different phases of it, you know, animation, TV, movies, TV, comics, all different times. Well, what, what are you looking forward to about um, what you're doing with artists, writers, and artisans and or uh, writing your own novels? I managed to acquire a certain degree of creative freedom by going in, rolling in a grenade and coming in firing. And I have, by virtue of not dying, <laughs> not getting out of my career, reached the point now where people tend to say, would you like to do this? And here's all the creative freedom that you want. And my goals now are the same when I was 17 years old. Um, when, I, when I met Rod Serling briefly, and he said, never let him stop you from telling the story you want to tell. And I want to keep pushing myself. I want to keep um, walking outside my comfort zone. Uh, the novel that I just finished is a mainstream novel written in a non-conventional narrative style, but a very controversial subject where if I got anything wrong, they're going to kill me. And I love that challenge. Uh, I'm working on my first play in a number of years that I'm hoping to get done sometime in the spring and get it produced and see what happens. For me, it's all about just constantly being reborn. I think that 
whether you're working in an office or you're a writer or you're an artist, there is the danger of you, you can either have 10 years of experience or you can have one year of experience 10 times by doing the same thing over and over. So well, my goal going forward is just to keep pushing myself, trying new things, being willing to fail and fall on my face because there's this notion in American society that failure is terrible, that, you know, don't try and be a writer, don't be an artist, because what if it doesn't work out? What if you fail? That would be terrible. And the, the military's position is that failure is an important part of the equation. If you don't fail once in a while, you're not doing it right. You try to get over the wall, you fail, you figure it out. Next time it is, you, you go over it. And I embrace my inner failure. I, I love to embrace my inner failure uh, because that's where the fun and the danger and the adrenaline is. So um, I want to just try and keep going forward doing things that I, I shouldn't be able to do. And along the way, as much as I possibly can, to tell those coming up the ladder next, you know what, it's possible, as I mentioned at the top of the show, that... No, you didn't have the best parents or the best schools or the best grades, but there is inside of you something glorious if you are willing to let it happen. As as kids, we all spontaneously sing, dance, tell stories, act. Then someone, usually an adult, says to us, you're embarrassing yourself, let an adult do that, you're not very good at it, and inch by inch we unlearn our passions. I call this the tyranny of reasonable voices. Because often they're, they're family members or friends who don't want to see us get hurt by trying something that we think it's not going to work out. And if there's you know, any way that on a day-to-day basis, whether it's on Twitter or at a convention of parents or in a book, I can say to people, don't forget your passions. Don't forget the things that matter to you. Pursue those things. Live in full flight of your passions and your dreams. The hell with where you came from. Look at where you're going. And keep going, because again, if I can do it with my limited social skills, an annoying personality, a face that looks like it came off of a Homeland Security wanted poster, if I can do it, you can do it. Okay, thank you very much. And if there is anything, large or small, that you'd like to tell our listeners, what would it be? That was pretty much it, I think. Well, it wouldn't need to be a speech. It it, it could just be um, my new book is coming out on, you know, whatever. Ah. Um, if there's anything I would like to add beyond that very long proposed uh, uh, speech, <laughs> it is that if you want to learn more about these comics that I've written and how they came to be and how Babylon 5 was created and the various shows that I've done, um, Becoming Superman, which is out on July 23rd, uh, is a real insight into that creative process. The first half of it is very dark. Uh, it, it's, there's a lot of personal stuff in there that I've been wrestling with for a number of years. There's a larger story involving murder and terrible things that I'm also breaking for the first time. So I would, I would commend the book to you. And it comes out from HarperCollins uh, Voyager uh, in July. And I will be hitting a lot of conventions this year. I hope to see you and to uh, hear your thoughts about it. So that brings us around to, you know, the highly personal nature of, of some of the things you included in the book, as you just brought up. Um, 
What was it like for you finally writing this book? It was hard. Um, when you are brought up in a violent, abusive, alcoholic, monstrous situation where you move every six to eight months to avoid, you know, people finding out what's really going on inside the family, you learn to keep the secrets. You learn, you never talk about what happens inside the house. And there's a part of my brain that even as an adult had that thing in, of don't talk about this, you'll get in trouble. Don't talk about this, wait till your father gets home. Another beating will happen. And I really had to work to get past that and also to discuss things that I wasn't sure what people would think about. I mean, the fact that according to my, my, my parents, you know, my, my father and my mother, um, I was conceived in a brothel. My mother was a prostitute. She's an underage prostitute working in a, a brothel. And that's where I was conceived. And that, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it, but I think how would other people react to that information? So there was a lot of trepidation going into it. And in my heart of hearts now, even to this moment, every time I hear someone say, I read your book, I go, <gasps> inside, I kind of, oh, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so it's on the one level very cathartic, other level complete, completely terrifying at the same time. So I'm, I'm dying to know how this goes over. It's going to be, talk about walking outside your comfort, that comfort zone. This has been the biggest step outside that ever is, is just talking about my own life and the things that no one ever knew before. So, um, yeah, joy and terror, I would say, in equal measure. Well, J. Michael Straczynski, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for being on Publishers Weekly Comic World. More to come. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good luck. <laughs> 